This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for part two of the interview with Dave McClure on what's wrong with venture. Quickly, I wanted to mention that a bunch of you have reached out about how best to connect with me on DealFlow. I think the best method at this stage is to just go to AngelList and search for Newstack Ventures. There you can find our syndicate page and you can back the syndicate, getting access to all our DealFlow. In addition to that, you're always welcome to email me and we could chat about ways to share DealFlow with each other. Okay, for today's interview, we cover questions including... Regarding entrepreneurs, are there any problematic issues that Dave's observed on the founder side? Dave's thoughts on who might be one of the most misunderstood people in the venture ecosystem. How he thinks about other accelerators, including Y Combinator and Techstars, and also how they differentiate at 500. Dave's other thoughts on challenges in the venture environment and what he'd like to see change going forward. And finally, we look at the other side of the coin and some of the most positive things that he's seen transpire in venture over the past few years. All right, let's jump into part two of the interview with Dave McClure of 500 Startups. You know, while we're talking about entrepreneurs, are there any problematic issues or, or maybe trends that you've observed on the founder side? Well, I think maybe what you had identified in that, you know, a lot of founders may not have been around for the last downturn. They may not have seen harder times in raising capital. I I think, you know, founders always have challenges. I don't know that anything is necessarily specific to the upside uh, of the market. You know, if you're competing for customers and you're trying to get a business off the ground, you have a lot of different challenges to face in terms of how you, you know, make product, how you acquire customers, how you manage and recruit your employees. Um, I think possibly one thing that we've seen is, you know, a lot of use of convertible notes with higher valuation caps. Um, There's been a trend for a lot of people to raise, you know, more than a million dollars, maybe up to two or three million dollars in some cases on convertible note structure. Um, When they, if and when they eventually get to an equity term sheet, the conversion of that capital into shares may not always um, occur with the reasonable expectations. Um, And so they may need to really look at the math and understand how those convertible notes turn into, um, you know, shares. They may, you know, be expecting that they're only giving up 10, 20% when they end up giving up more like 30% or more in some cases. Yep. Um, probably even more of a concern than that is if they don't ever convert, (laughs) um, (laughs) and that they're raising debt capital and just never getting to an equity round. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know that these are new problems. I think there's, you know, always 
for many founders, understanding term sheets, whether they're convertible notes or equity, a lot of times it's their first time, uh, and they certainly don't see those uh, terms as often as the investors or the venture capital investors do. So they're a little bit of a disadvantage just by not being familiar with how things operate. First-timers are going to go through some hard lessons, and you know, hopefully they learn. Yeah, sure. So Dave, uh, I'd like to hear who you think might be one of the most misunderstood people in the venture ecosystem. Who might be one of the mis- most misunderstood people in the venture ecosystem? Uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> most misunderstood. <laughs> well, I think, you know, there's some interesting folks out there who are sort of pushing the envelope, um, at least on venture. Uh, you quoted Jason Lemkin before. I think he's one of the smartest guys out there. We've been co-investors in a few companies together. Uh, I don't know if he's misunderstood, but I think, you know, he's one of the guys I would probably be watching over the next few years. I think he's going to be a real superstar and how he sort of promotes and, you know, identifies companies of interest. Um, I think Jason Calcanis is a little bit of a volatile figure and sometimes people may view him both positively and negatively. Maybe Mark Cuban also, I think people put in that category. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of colorful figures in venture, just like there are in other industries. And, you know, we, we tend to try and promote and market ourselves. That's one way that we get access to deal flow. I, that may be misinterpreted by some folks in the market, but I think that's not, it's not terribly uh, unusual that people will try and market themselves differently from others in order to get access to, to companies. You're too generous, Dave. I was hoping to serve that one up so that you could tell us all why you're misunderstood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think I probably tend to be a very loud and obnoxious voice, and sometimes I'm uh, likely to use profanity to attract attention. But hopefully our investment strategy is one that's based on logic and data, not just based on uh, (laughs) kind of sound and fury. (laughs) Well, I, I, we all appreciate the sound and fury too, uh, from my perspective, at least. <laughs> I, I think you, uh, as I like to say, it's uh, useful to have a voice that's heard. Absolutely. So, on that point, with uh, with five hundred as an accelerator, how do you feel like you guys differentiate versus other accelerators? Well, I think we've you know done a lot of work in the last four or five years to uh, hopefully you know carve out our own space. I think we you know probably compete with TechStars and Y Combinator most prominently as national or global programs. Uh, I think, like we mentioned, focusing on marketing and internet marketing and customer acquisition is one of the areas that we try to emphasize where we're different. Uh, we have about fifteen to twenty people on staff who do nothing but you know internet customer acquisition and consulting. Um, we're in Silicon Valley. That's kind of one of the places where we feel we're connecting with other companies and investors and other entrepreneurs. Uh, that's not necessarily different than Y Combinator, but we both are right in the heart of where a lot of other activity is. Um, I would say two of the things where we're different is that we are pretty extremely international. Um, so both our team and our investments, uh, about a third of our team and about a third of our investments are made outside the U.S. Uh, our team comes from about 20 other countries. We invest in about 50 or 60 countries. That's a really, really big part of what 500 is all about. In addition to international investments, I think we're probably one of the more notable investors 
in women and minorities uh, in the U.S., but just generally, I think, you know, a more diverse portfolio. Again, both our team and our investment strategy is a real big believer in diversity at almost every kind of level. Great. Any other comments on challenges in the venture environment that you'd like to see change going forward? Well, I think, you know, venture capital itself is challenging. Uh, I think probably not more than half, and in fact, maybe only a quarter of, of venture capital funds or investors are successful in getting to substantial return on their investment. Uh, people in the industry talk about top quartile or even top decile performance. I think it's hard to be consistent, uh, a consistent top performer in venture. There's probably not very many venture capital funds that are consistently, you know, winning three times in a row. Uh, that's probably less than 10% of the industry. Again, some of that I think is based on how we construct portfolios. Some of that is based on, you know, not being really differentiated. Uh, but I think we need to continue to challenge ourselves to be just as innovative as the industries we invest invest in. Um, and whether that's, you know, working harder to find companies, working harder to help companies, maybe not paying ourselves quite as much as the traditional VC who sits on Sand Hill Road and, you know, takes a lot of money in management fees. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's a lot of innovation that can be, you know, done in the industry. I think you see companies like First Round Capital, maybe at the Series A stage, um, you know, Google Ventures and Andreessen Horowitz and a few others at the later stages. Um, and, you know, others like Y Combinator and Techstars and ourselves at sort of Accelerator and Seed stage. We're all I think doing interesting and differentiated work that's not maybe the traditional structure for venture. Um, I think a lot more non-investment services offerings are definitely part of where we're headed. I, I think you're seeing, you know, the the generalist VC that's probably going away. You're going to have more sector focus and specialization in venture, whether that's, you know, at the accelerator stage or at the late stage. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more services that might be helping with business development or recruiting, uh, education, maybe marketing that are specific to each stage and area. Um, so I, I think that's a good thing. And I think you're going to see a lot more competition and differentiation over the next few years. Yeah. And while we're talking about some positive things, what's what are some of the, the more positive trends or things that you see uh, currently transpiring or or happening in in, in the recent years? Well, I think as much as uh, I might hate to admit it, entrepreneurs are getting smarter. I think that, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of first timers out there that continue to have to learn lessons, but the lessons that they learn might be, you know, more available and visible in the market. They can, you know, see information on the, the trade publications like TechCrunch and others. They can raise money online via AngelList or Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Uh, they can use other online platforms like, you know, Quora or other, you know, social platforms to exchange information. So I think the first timers tend to learn faster. Um, there's certainly a lot more infrastructure and plumbing available for people to build stuff on top of. So things in general, I'd say are a lot cheaper to build these days than they were five, 10, 15 years ago. Yep. Um, and I think you're seeing the spread of kind of accelerators and seed capital around the world, not just in the U.S., but globally as well. So access to capital, although it's still maybe challenging in some parts of the world, continues to get better and better. Um, and as you see the consumer and business markets moving more and more online globally, I think the opportunities are just you know exploding all over the place. Um, there's a reason that we're going after 
uh, venture internationally and it's frankly just because there's more market opportunity available there. Most most of the growth that we're going to be seeing over the next 10 years is not going to be happening in the U.S. It's going to be happening in places like Southeast Asia, in India, in Latin America, in Africa, and the Middle East. Um, most of those populations are still not at you know 50 to 100% internet penetration. Um, there's still a ton of growth that's happening. There's still a ton of online payments adoption. So it's really, you know, it's pretty exciting when you think about, you know, the market opportunities are expanding, the cost of building platforms is going down, and generally we think the education opportunities and experience of entrepreneurs is going up. Um, those are all factors that move in our favor as investors. And, you know, for those willing to venture outside Silicon Valley or outside the U.S., it may be a little bit risky and rocky the first few years, but for those who are willing to, you know, invest that time and money, I think it's going to pay off dramatically over the next decade. Well, despite all the opportunity internationally, I hope your uh, your geeks on a plane makes a stop here in Chicago at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I certainly uh, love to visit Chicago at least in the spring and summer and fall. I'm not so sure about the winter, but hope to uh, be by the windy city again sometime soon. I moved back here three years ago, and I think it's taken me the past three years to readjust to the winters. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, if we could address any topic related to startups or venture, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Um, there's a lot of people that I respect in the industry who I think have a lot to add. Um, you know, some of my investors and mentors, uh, Brad Feld, Fred Wilson, uh, Mark Andreessen, uh, Mitch Kapoor have all been amazing. I, I think those folks have, you know, really, really great perspectives. Mark Suster is another person I, I hold highly a lot of respect for. Um, maybe if I were going to highlight a few new voices out there, I think Jason Lemkin is kind of one of those. I think I mentioned him before. Yep. Uh, Aileen Lee at Cowboy Ventures, I think is pretty interesting also. Um, but I might just, you know, promote a woman on our staff who's just getting started. Uh, Monique Woodard is going to be working in a fund that's focused on black and Hispanic entrepreneurs in the U S um, uh, she's a black woman herself. And I think we don't really get to hear a lot of uh, investment opinions or voices from folks who maybe aren't the more typical venture investors. Uh, so as much as I like to respect a lot of my white male predecessors who have been around for a while, I think hearing from some other voices of color uh, and diversity are important as well. What startup investor has influenced you and inspired you the most, and why? Well, it's hard to pin down one person, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think Paul Graham certainly has been a huge influence from Y Combinator, um, Brad Feld and David Cohen at Techstars. Yep. Um, Josh Kaufman at first round, I think, is probably one of the most thoughtful people out there. I think he's really built a tremendous firm. Um, very, very thoughtful in how he kind of constructs services that are helpful to his portfolio. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can point out just one. I think it really, there's a lot of people out there that have been thoughtful and we've kind of drawn bits and pieces from uh, a lot of different pe people out there. Um, but I think it's important for your, everybody to kind of come up with their own sort of unique approach and strategy. I think there are lessons we learned from everyone out there, but, um, you know, you should be your own artist and try and come up with your own uh, sort of unique flavor and strategy for what you're going after. And then just to wrap up, Dave, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? 
Well, I'd, I'd love to try and talk to as many people as possible, but I'm not always the person in our team that people should be pitching. Uh, in fact, I'm usually out there trying to raise money more than I am trying to invest it. Um, there's probably over 30 people on our team who are making investment decisions. Uh, any of our founders and mentors are also great places to connect with. Um, a lot of times, you know, we like to hear that people connect through our portfolio or people who are, you know, familiar with the industries that they're going after. Mentions 500 or mentions me in a way that's interesting and hopefully not too much ass kissing. Um, <laughs> but again, it's probably easier to get a hold of other people at our company than it is uh, to catch my attention. And like I said, I'm not the only one that writes checks. We have about 30 people who are doing that. Awesome. Well, Dave, you've been a, a big inspiration to me for, for a long time from afar and uh, continue to be colorful, continue to be vocal and really appreciate you sharing the time with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Okay. Thanks again to Dave for making the time for us. Let's recap the key takeaways. Number one is called the lack of innovation in VC. Compared to building a business, investing is just not a lot of work. Dave talked about how the effort for VCs is concentrated on getting the fund raised. After that, most of the job is about taking meetings and saying no with the occasional yes. There's a lot of folks that make a good salary on management fees, whether or not they have a successful fund and receive carry. Because of that, a lot of the way VC operates now is not very different from how it did 30 to 40 years ago. And Dave believes that the generalist VC is going away. Going forward, he believes that there will be more sector focus, specialization, services, business development, recruiting, and education. He sees much more competition and differentiation in the future amongst the VC ranks. And another issue combating progress is related to LPs. 
Dave said that LP influence over fund strategy may not be positive, but it's also not a new trend. And those early and new fund managers that one might think should be the most innovative are also the most likely to be influenced by LPs. This results in fund managers that will move their strategy toward the sexy trend of the day. So those that should be driving change end up as fast followers. Key takeaway number two is called fundraising concerns. When discussing concerning trends in the fundraising environment, Dave mentioned both early and late stage issues. First, let's review the early stage. So number one was that more convertible notes are coming in at increasingly higher caps. Dave has observed over recent years that many entrepreneurs are raising more than a million dollars on convertible note structures. And when these founders eventually get to an equity term sheet, the conversion may not occur with reasonable expectations. They may expect to be giving up 10 to 20%, where they're actually giving up 30 to 40%. And then there are those that raise on a convertible, but never get to a subsequent equity round. Convertibles are debt capital, not equity, which brings another set of issues if conversion fails to occur. Okay, and the second point in the early stage issues was the increase in seed investment. We also discussed the influx of new angels, new seed funds, and much more capital at the early stages. Where there used to be a handful of seed funds, there are now over a hundred. But Dave doesn't see this as a major problem. While newer investors seem less sensitive to valuation and have less experience, this overall has had positive impact on the ecosystem. And then we discussed late stage issues. The first being the influx of non-VC capital. When discussing the recent reduction in valuations, particularly for SaaS, Dave's opinion was that they've come back down to a more rational level. For a period, they were inflated, and new entrants were driving some of this valuation increase. We've talked about this a number of times in the newsletter and Venture Weekly. Many late-stage private companies have stayed private longer and grown faster into multi-billion dollar companies. This restricted the supply side of growth tech companies in the public markets and has caused much more demand for investment in late-stage private companies. With this, a host of new players started investing in late-stage venture. Corporates, private equity, hedge funds, and large financial institutions all became active financiers in the venture market. And this led to the second issue we discussed, which was the late-stage dirty term sheet. While a number of these later-stage investors became less valuation-sensitive, they also protected their downside. By including lots of structure or liquidation preferences, they could ensure that if the company raised again or went public at a lower valuation than the current round, they would still get the return they needed. So they were playing both sides. If things went great and the valuation continued skyrocketing, they win. If things go poorly or flat, then they still get their healthy liquidation preference and the previous investors, namely the common stockholders, i.e. founders and employees, lose a lot of their return. This is where the infamous full ratchet rears its ugly head. While full ratchets are typically less common or concerning at the early stages, they have become a preferred method for late stage investors to capture more equity. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called what's going right with VC. Despite today's controversial topic, we also discussed what's going well and who's driving positive change. 
Regarding innovators on the investment side, Dave mentioned 500's efforts to have a much more diversified portfolio, both in volume and diversity of investments. Others in the industry that he feels have been innovative include Y Combinator and Techstars at the seed stage, First Round at Series A, and Google Ventures and Andreessen Horowitz at the B or later stages. And Dave also mentioned some positive trends in venture, including VCs have become more international. There is significantly more tech infrastructure and plumbing for entrepreneurs to build on. It's become a lot cheaper to build a startup. It's easier to get the information required to build and grow a company. And in general, entrepreneurs are smarter and more educated about the entire process. All right, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Forever or Fleeting. Today, Dave talked about sectors and trends that are hot and attract many investors. Even LPs are wooed by the new sexy tech trends, which has influenced the thesis of VC fund managers. Dave has seen many cycles over the years and has structured his thesis around long-term, sustainable, competitive advantages. And as I reviewed his comments, I saw a parallel at the business model level. I considered my deal flow and the businesses that have staying power, not at a technology or sector level, but in the way the business attracts and retains customers. And I asked myself, from this list of startups, which have long-term sustainable value creation? Are their customers a one-time event or a loyal customer for life? I just received a deck yesterday from a company that has developed a SaaS platform for high school athletes. They have great adoption, high engagement, and seem to be providing strong value to their customers. But their business has distinct limitations. They do not want to serve pre-high school athletes, and there is no strategy to expand to college. They have a four-year window to serve their customers. Another startup deck that I received a couple weeks ago was from a company that has reimagined the baby crib. They have a beautiful, free-trade, organic product that has had strong success selling direct-to-consumer on the internet. Cool product, great founding team, healthy traction. But again, this is a one-time sale at a distinct point in time. With each of these businesses... Are they selling to a customer that will remain loyal in perpetuity? Is there an opportunity to build more value and sell more to that customer for decades to come? I think the answer is no, unless they reimagine their customer. Is the customer really the high school athlete, or is it the high school? Is the customer the baby's parent, or is it the retailer that specializes in baby products? I'm not going to tell these founders how to run their businesses. It's their business and their strategy. And this is just my own personal preference. As an investor, I like to see the opportunity for sustained long-term customers. Is the business dependent on attracting mass numbers of new customers to make up for those that churned away? If one's customers are a one-time event, customer acquisition must be a primary focus. And the company's differentiation and staying power may be rooted in its ability to acquire customers. But if the focus is on customer retention and delivering more value, the differentiation can be rooted in product. How do we better serve customers? Not just 
how do we better attract customers? So whether you're building a startup or investing in them, consider asking, are your customers forever or fleeting? That will wrap up the episode for today. Thanks again to Dave McClure and the 500 Startups team. I've had great interactions with them over the past few months and have a tremendous amount of respect for what they're doing. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you have any questions, again, make sure you send me an email. It's nick at fullratchet.net. I'm assembling those questions and we'll publish an episode early next week with some of the answers. All right, until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening. Thank you.